question about your question. So let's go one <laughs> one step yeah, up. Look, there's nothing outside the text. It's all it's all questions all <laughs> the way let's down, go, baby. Yes, but... let's go. left of philosophy. I'm Gil. Here with me today is Lillian. Hi, Gil. Owen. Hey. And Will. What's going on, man? And we're very excited to be joined by a guest today, uh, Joel Michael Reynolds. Joel is an assistant professor of philosophy and disability studies at Georgetown University, a senior research scholar in the Kennedy Institute of Ethics and a senior advisor to the Hastings Center. He's written extensively on questions concerning the nature and meaning of disability and its relationship to fundamental issues in philosophy and social theory. Joel's articles have appeared in numerous journals and he himself founded the Journal of Philosophy of Disability. Definitely keep an eye out in the next few months for two books that are coming out. In March, he's publishing a book called The Life Worth Living, Disability, Pain, and Morality with the University of Minnesota Press. And in May, Rutledge is publishing The Disability Bioethics Reader, which Joel co-edited with Christine Weisler. Joel's work pushes us to ask difficult questions about the way in which our concepts of ability and disability are intertwined with seemingly more familiar structures of power, such as white supremacy, sexism, and capital. And he encourages us to develop a more critical and nuanced grasp of the mostly silent but deeply significant link between bodies, normativity, and power. I'm sure I'm not alone in having a lot of questions to ask, Joel. Uh, disability is an incredibly important and I think relatively under-theorized aspect of leftist theory and practice, as it forms a backdrop against which we think about lives worth living in the first place. The question of what kinds of life are worth living and the tacit assumptions we tend to hold about the value of different forms of life is, as Joel shows us, a historically variable and politically dispositive matter, one that constitutes a site of ongoing struggle and contestation. It's sort of hard to know where to begin, uh, especially because I imagine that disability studies is sort of unfamiliar territory for at least some of our listeners. I think I'd like to start by asking you, Joel, about the distinction between disability and impairment, which is often central to a lot of these discussions. But it's a distinction that you think, as far as I understand, might not be so neat or might actually be problematic in itself. So I think that might hopefully open the door for a broader conversation about disability, philosophy, and left politics. So, you know, just to get things going, you know, what is this difference uh, between impairment and disability, broadly construed? How has that difference been invoked? And what are some of the issues at play in making and challenging that sort of distinction? Um, also, hello. I should have said hi. <laughs> <laughs> thank, uh, thank you so hi, much. Um, Welcome, Joel. Uh, hi, Joel. <laughs> hi, uh, sorry for Gil. Hey, Joel. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> hi, everybody. Now it's we're over pleasure to be here. <laughs> I, I am a, I'm a big fan of the show. I've been listening, I think, since the very beginning, and I really love what y'all are up to and the sort of conversations you're having. So uh, it's truly a, an honor and a pleasure to be here and get to chat with you today. Uh, that's a great opening question, Gil. I, I think 
let's jump in. So um, a little bit of Disability Studies 101, what is called the social model of disability, though in truth there are social models, there is no one variation of this, is usually thought to have this core distinction at play between disability and impairment. And the way this is usually explained is, is quite simple. Impairment refers to the differences, perhaps you could even say the abnormalities or atypicalities of people's bodies. And disability refers to how people, how societies, how structures, how political institutions respond to impairment. And the moment you have this, again, very basic, very heuristic distinction in hand, you can immediately start to pick out cases where the problem that, say, someone who has an impairment leading them to use a wheelchair for mobility, the problems that they face in the world will not necessarily be merely <laughs> um, a question of that impairment full stop, but of how the world around them responds to that way of getting around. Uh, and the example that I still use, even though it's, it's um, been talked about a thousand times, I think anyone who's a good TikToker knows this, but you know, if you use a wheelchair and you uh, are out and about, and then you come across a long flight of stairs, on a social model, you can say, well, even though the person may be impaired in this or that way, the problem here is design. The problem here is architecture. The problem here is societal because someone chose. There was, well, probably multiple people chose <laughs> for that, um, for those stairs to be built as opposed to some other mode of getting from point A to B across an incline. This distinction and I think this is extremely important for people to appreciate who are first kind of coming into disability studies. This in some ways is the most radical, important distinction about disability in history. I mean, th this is just, I, I cannot possibly overstate how crucial this has been for disability activism, disability politics, and not just in the global north, but in many, many, many places around the world. Having said that, as with all, um, or as with most political uh, tools, it is, it is purposely simplistic. And it doesn't quite take us, I don't think any disability activists, certainly not more recent people working under the banner of disability justice, it doesn't take us quite far enough to appreciate the actual lived complexity of uh, disabled people's lives and just people's lives more generally. Um, and that's what brings us to, you know, there's a whole history here of, especially from the mid-90s forward, of people critiquing the social model, saying it's outdated, saying it's insufficient in X, Y, or Z ways. And I do think most of those critiques, there is something to them. But I don't want us to throw the baby out with the bathwater because obviously throwing babies is never an appropriate action. Yeah, no, yeah. I think we agree with that on the pod. You know, that <laughs> least radical Good. statement, but I won't speak for Gil. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Fine. <laughs> if, I, if I could just stick with this for a little bit and ask you to say a little more about it, you kind of track the way that some people have responded to the way that the distinction between impairment and disability can erase complexity. Some people have responded to that with the desire to kind of deconstruct it entirely, right? And so you address yeah. a pretty post-structuralist move that tries to say that there is no such thing as like a pre-discursive impairment um, that is a, a pure referent or something that then gets taken up into a more constructed and socially determined concept like like a disability. So you, I mean, it seems to an extent that you, you sympathize with some of that gesture, but like you just said, right, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say that, well, there's 
everything about impairment is just also socially constructed, linguistic, you know, et cetera. So if you could say, could you say a little bit more about how you see, I guess, the mediation between impairment and disability, right? The way that they're mediated with one another rather than just collapsed into one or the other, right? Collapsed either into a social constructivist model or into a positivist in the pejorative sense <laughs> model. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, that's that's a great question. Sorry to interrupt. I just, I'm actually wondering if we could go one step backward and just like what some of the like, what is it? What are what are the complexities that are being missed? Like, what's the dissatisfaction between that distinction between impairment and disability? Because, like, I think I think I, I'm totally um, want to hear what you said about Owen's question too, which is that like you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater just because it's insufficient in some ways. But I wasn't super clear about what those ways were and like how it kind of pushed people into, mm. as Owen was saying, this like kind of radical mm-hmm. social constructivist position that you're now assessing? Yeah, so one of my favorite books or, or works in general to go to to think about this particular critique is Susan Wendell's, I think it's a 1995 book called The Rejected Body. And she's writing out of experiences of chronic pain and chronic illness. And she says, and this is almost a direct quote, she says, look, there are, there are some types of suffering that a just world cannot fix a perfectly just world, one that has no ableism, no sexism, no whatever. And obviously, this is, that's a, well, utopic in a qualified sense. I, whenever I say that <laughs> word around Will, I, I want to be very careful. Um, it, it, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Will, please. That is just wrong, Wendell says. For example, if you have neuropathic pain, a perfectly accessible world is not going to fix your neuropathic pain. As far as we can tell, as far as we've learned about pain, and pain sciences have grown massively since the 70s, um, neuropathic pain, even though it's it's something that requires a kind of multidisciplinary approach, and even though increasingly clinicians and researchers understand that it's a combination of physiological and psychological factors, it's still the case that probably you're going to need something like morphine or opioids, or you're going to need some kind of intervention at the level of, of physical and chemical biochemical interactions to mitigate and or manage that sort of pain. Again, in at least some of the cases, obviously neuropathic pain is a very big umbrella term, so we would need to get more specific. But this is all to say the disability activists who are you know, fighting for things like more anti-discrimination uh, protections or even fighting for a constitutional approach to disability that would afford basic rights that are needed that will still not fix some of the ways in which there are impairments that in and of themselves, and what precisely that means, let's say at the level of the body insofar as we can abstractly think about it outside of social formations or social uh, orders, that's where the problem is. You need a biomedical fix for something like neuropathic pain. I'll give another example, and maybe this will, hopefully this will help clarify it even further, epilepsy. Now, if you do your you know, good historical and anthropological work, you know that in many different places uh, across time, and, and even some places today, what we call under the rubric of modern medicine, West, Western medicine today, epilepsy, was viewed as a visitation from the gods. It was a spiritual experience, and often it would move the person who experienced that would potentially be put into you know, the priestly class, or you know, there would be a a really significant um, 
and arguably positive response to that form of embodiment. Epilepsy, I also like as an example, <laughs> uh, because there are physiological components to it, but there are psychological ramifications. That can, there's a lot going on with epilepsy. Now, on the one hand, someone who takes a genealogical approach might say, look, doesn't this prove, doesn't that difference, historical and culturally, prove that the meaningfulness of epilepsy is just socially constructed? And I want to say, I see your point. I see where you're going there. You know, like there is something to that. And yet, I don't think that the person who lives in the society where epilepsy is interpreted as a visitation from the gods, there's some magically different thing going on at the level of the gray matter in their brain. Mm -hmm. I think there's something similar going on here. Well, theoretically, how can we point to that? We have to use the tools of something like referring to something real, referring to some underlying physiological difference, in other words, an impairment, that even though the meaningfulness of it and, and the way in which a person will experience it will be scaffolded in perhaps wildly different ways across cultural and historical contexts, there's still something there uh, that we can point to and say that the ancient Greek person who's described in whatever text you want to talk about that was being visited from the gods, they had epilepsy. And it's not anachronistic to say that in the sense in which I'm specifying the similarity even though, of course, on some other historical sense, that's completely anachronistic to say that. So I'm wanting to just try and be very, what I hope is that the, this, the people who really push for this genealogical kind of approach, some of whom are more social constructionists in the pejorative sense than others, I just want there to be a little more nuance. I like this approach. It does things that I think are very helpful, but it sometimes just goes too far. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, this is this is very um, bare bones. But what I was getting when I was reading your your work on this, especially with the the notion of, of chronic pain, and again, you know, this is very reductive. But this is my first time like telling y'all about this. But I actually do have a chronic pain disease that requires me to get biomedical medic um, infusions every uh, two months. And when I was a teenager, I would be in chronic pain. Like I had to drop out of school. I couldn't get out of bed. And you know, doctors just like you know, for a long time didn't know what was wrong with me. And I you know, remember my dad because he had no answers. He just kind of fell back on this whole sort of mind over matter thing. Like, you know, you just need to orient yourself to your life differently rather than giving in to, to what this is. And, you know, I, I'm saying this not to dunk on my dad. I get it. if you don't have any other answers, then it seems like really appealing to try to like, you know, situate this thing that's happening in your body and say like, no, 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 this is something contextual that you, you can sort of uh, excavate. But you know, for the person in chronic pain, you know, there's nothing that feels discursive about it. You know, mm. it, if anything, <laughs> if there is something discursive, yeah. it's at least, you know, extra discursive. But I would say there is something pre-discursive about, you know, your body in, in a very real sense turning against you not uh, allowing you to complete projects that you, you want to complete. And I think taking pain seriously, you know, I get there are more sophisticated ways of talking about social construction, but I do worry about, you know, this whole, it's all historically variable. And so, you know, we're not like just pushing back against people contemporarily. Like Sartre sometimes does have a weird thing. He once says this weird thing, critique a dialectical reason of like, you know, people in a culture who it just wasn't a part of their culture to eat very often. So they would just like go weeks without eating. 
leaving. He's like, yeah, of course, because you know the, that's a part of the historical project. He's like, I, I think this might have been one of your more hyperbolic I don't moments, know, John Paul. Yeah, yeah like, I, I don't know about that. about that. Like, I, I really wish it were that way, but I don't think so. And so, um, the question I wanted to ask ask you, and maybe you want to go back to, to Owen's question, but I think it, it links up is. In what you gave us, you, you start talking about genomics. And I think a lot of people on the left um, are really suspicious of you know, talking about genes and you know, what kind of uh, truth or evidence that they give us for good reasons. Like you, you are very well aware of you know, the kind of eugenic projects that can happen when we start saying genes determine X, genes determine this predisposition. But you're arguing for a more nuanced position of like, of we can't cannot just ignore the type of evidence and knowledge we can get from these sophisticated technologies. And I wonder if you could say a bit more about why you're like, you know, we, hold on, we have to slow down even when it comes to genomics. Yeah, and it, oh, and you'll have to jump back in in a second so that I remember to come back to your original question. Um, it's all good. It's being addressed obliquely, I feel. We're good. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, if, it, if the obliqueness starts bothering you, we can make it more direct. Yeah, regarding... Regarding the hesitancy on the left, I mean, I am one of these, like I'm, whenever I encounter these discourses, especially at the level of kind of like national media sort of stuff, where everything's being highly condensed and or simplified um, relative to the underlying re research, I do get very suspicious. I get suspicious because it is so often the case that at the level of the, let's just go with the public imaginary, and I'm including, you know, people who have up through at least a college education, let's say, something like that, at the level of the public imaginary, it feels as though people are making claims about the truth of a person's body. And on the one hand, there is something about genomic information that tells us about individual bodies. It, is, it even tells us about groups at the level of genetic cohorts. So that I don't think is contested. The trick is, what is the meaningfulness of a gene or a genome? Right. What is that object of, of inquiry and how does that relate to what goes on in an appointment with your general practitioner or what goes on when public health policy professionals are trying to decide how they should uh, shape a particular intervention that's supposed to be targeted at a group that's perceived to be a vulnerable population. And it's at the level of how the information is taken up and what that information is assumed to be saying that I think a lot of the, the nuance is, is dropping out. And so I just, a different way to put this is that there are many, many different sorts of conditions. We're having insights into the genomic drivers behind it or genomic considerations of it. It's helpful, period. It's helpful. It's helpful to clinicians. It might be helpful at the level of even an individual understanding something fundamental about their body and maybe being able to enter into groups with other people who have a similar underlying you know, genetic or genomic situation. This is something that I, I really like this piece by Eva Kate called We Have Seen the Mutants and They Are Us or something like this. We'll put it in the show notes. And she talks about how her daughter, Sasha, they had never bothered doing any genetic or genomic testing to figure out whether there was an underlying genomic cause to Sesha's form of embodiment and the types of care that she needed and all this stuff until her seizures got worse. They ran out of options clinically to kind of figure out what the hell was going on. 
they run this test and they find out she has what's called Pyrrhus syndrome. You can't figure this out. You, you don't know if you have Pyrrhus syndrome without genomic information. And one of the really positive things that came from this was that now Sasha and her family can interact with other people who have this condition. You know, there's now a whole body of, of localized knowledge and, and belonging, a mm. sense of belonging with the community that would not have happened without, mm. you know, this stuff that otherwise might be like, oh, genet it's genetically reductive or whatever. So I want to allow that that can be positive. And yet, when, you know, something like Bidal, you know, the, the drug that was marketed solely to African-Americans for hypertension, and then there is some stuff in the media that talks about uh, underlying genetic or genomic differences as part of the rationale for the development of this drug, then I'm like, fuck, stop, like, stop. This is not, <laughs> this is not capturing the complexity. There's a, in that case in particular, there's an egregious conflation between the social political category of African-American and underlying genetic cohort differences. Those are not isomorphic. Um, mm. And yet the way it was talked about at the level of the media, even at the level of the, I mean, the FDA, for goodness sake, the way, the way it was talked about ran roughshod in many cases over the complexity of the science that was being referred to. Mm. And so I really, the, the translational move from basic research being done in genomics or hell, basic research in any number of <laughs> domains that apply to human and non-human animal life, the translational work from that basic stuff to how it gets taken up by the public, I, I just, there has to be better ways to do this. I mean, better basic education, scientific education, that's definitely one component. Like, there's lots of things that we need to do, um, but that's where I think the problem really lies is more of a translational thing. It's not that genomics is bad in and of itself mm -hmm. or that genomics is fundamentally eugenic. I just don't think those claims, they do not relate to reality. You know, that's just someone yelling into the wind because they don't like it. That's super interesting. So if I could like maybe pick this up and ask you to clarify a little bit more, like it, I really appreciate this, this idea that there's like a non-isomorphism, right? Between on the one hand, something like, genomic formations or groups of genomic characteristics or attributes and then like phenotypes which are like socially so which are in almost to the very bottom socially constructed right yep. like phenotyp phenotypical differentiation is a difference in kind than like the sort of thing that is picked out by genomic research and so like it's it's a very tricky balancing act because I think you're right that it, in the public consciousness, like these things are thought to have a more one-to-one -one relationship than they in fact do, which shapes things like questions of policy, even even at the level of like research done, right? Or like the discussions that we have, like the example that you gave just now about like, you know, this, you know, drug marketed specifically to African-Americans, there's not even a clear like one-to-one -one relationship at all between anything like a genotype and the phenotype there. Nope. So like when you talk about this question of like the meaning then of something like ability or disability, like how does this, how does this relate to this distinction or problem? Yeah, great. So I think I, I like the way you phrase that. One of the, well, from my, from the areas that I work in, one of the things that scares me the most about a lot of contemporary discourse on the, on the left, let's say, is this failure in often cases to appreciate differences that make a difference while wanting on the one hand to appreciate those differences and celebrate them and then move towards a, some more universalizing 
vision of the world, whether it's rooted in human rights discourse, whether it's rooted, you know, pick your pick your favorite theory. And part of what I find worrisome about a lot of that discourse is that it's ignoring the complexity that is actually going on in research in the life sciences, which does give us actually a bunch of very interesting tools, like, for example, the ability to distinguish between racial categories and genetic cohorts and talk about them as being not isomorphic and giving us a toolbox to talk about the fact that we do know that there are something like, you know, genome-wide association studies give us really interesting insights into the drivers of group differences. And it is really helpful to know that those group differences just don't map on how, to how we carve up the world at the yeah. level of how we identify different groups. Like that's mm -hmm. really helpful. Also, insofar as understanding underlying genomic drivers does give us better tools for certain sorts of interventions, why in the hell would we want to throw that toolbox out? Um, you know, mm -hmm. the, I don't think the problem is necessary. Like I said before, it's not so much the problem is not the research being done per se. It's the way in which that research is being translated and taken up in actual social political life that worries me. So to go back to what I, where I think your question was going, when we talk about something like epilepsy, when we talk about something like major depression, when we talk about something like vitiligo, when we talk about something like Down syndrome, when we talk about something like being deaf, either in the sense of someone who's deaf and understands that as a loss or someone who's deaf, capital D, and understands that as belonging to a signing community. One of the things that worries me about some of the debate in philosophy of disability and how this is, is leveraged in other spheres, and also some of the debates even within disability activism, is that we do not have a rich enough, nuanced enough, complex enough taxonomy of differences at the level of what these mean for people's uh, understanding of their ability and or disability state in the world. So for example, I know people who have epilepsy, who identify as an epileptic, but who do not identify as disabled. I also know people <laughs> who have epilepsy, who being epileptic for them means they are disabled in the sense of being part of the disabled community. And you could run this sort of analysis with lots of different, the ways that we mark out the kind of ability disability system to invoke the way Rosemary Garland Thompson likes to talk about this. And if we keep running into this like, oh, but is there an underlying genomic difference? Or, oh, but is there an underlying, you know, etiology of X, Y, or Z sense? Or on the other hand, we go to, oh, well, this is just a question of community belonging. This is, this is just a question of the extent to which someone finds themselves as part of, you know, those routes of inquiry, if they are not mapped up to a larger picture of the complexity of this, I think can easily mislead us. Disability is just too complex, too heterogeneous, too multifactorial to take any one of these ways of defining it as definitive for the meaning of whatever the particular disability or ability in question is. So I guess what I'm trying to say is mm -hmm. one of my bigger concerns in the work that's being done is that it is still too narrow. You know, to take a great example, Elizabeth Barnes's book, The Minority Body, which is absolutely astonishing. If you have not read it, everyone on earth should read this book. Uh, came out in 2016. It's, I think, one of the best pieces of scholarship I've read in 10 or 20 years in any domain. Right at the beginning, she says, look, I'm limiting my account to physical disabilities. 
she, she just, you know, she's super honest and super humble. And it's just like, it gets too complicated if, if, if I also do what I'm trying to do and talk about psychological disabilities. Now, on the one hand, I love that humility and that way of acknowledging the heterogeneity of disability. And on the other hand, I'm like, okay, well, we got to talk more about all the stuff that's being left out here. We also got to talk about how, for example, how do you carve out just physical disabilities when so many forms of quote unquote physical impairment have psychological ramifications and or are in a loop, a, a loop that cannot be fundamentally abstracted apart with one another. You know, like the relationship between depression and multiple sclerosis for the first few years after the diagnosis. How the hell do you pick that apart? Like, I just, I don't see any way to do it. Um, so again, I'm, I'm very grateful that someone like Barnes is, tr is being honest and displaying intellectual humility and kind of, you know, carving out a space for the inquiries she's undertaking. But on the flip side, I'm like, we have to start taking this complexity head on. I think that there's just not going to be progress or whatever that means, progress in quotation marks uh, without doing that. Uh, leading off from that, you know, so one of the other pieces we, we read of yours was on disability and critical philosophy of race. That's a coming out in a super cool journal called Critical Philosophy of Race, the next issue. You all should check it out. Great editorial staff as well. Um, yeah, I, I've, I've heard that pretty cool. I've heard that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, this word on the street. Um, and so I wanted to, like, you know, to, you know, to again make very clear to our listeners, like, what are, like, you know, the really serious political and policy stakes of this? So, yeah. you know, in some areas of academic research that one could categorize as genomic study or even sort of like um, evolutionary biology. There are people who try to defend the thesis that, you know, the reason why you find higher crime rates amongst black people is that there is a genetic predisposition at the level of the group, whether it's, you know, depressed IQ rates or inhibited moral valuation that explains that in a way that something like, you know, systemic racism, poverty, or one zip code simply does not. And the reason why they are making this argument, and it is people who are who would probably identify themselves as liberals, realist liberals, but you know they might sound like conservatives to us, is that this is a waste of money trying to fix something that's fundamentally unfixable at the the, the level of, of genes. And so when I hear you talking about you know we need to like really This is the bell curve argument. Yeah. yeah but, it's a new new version of the bell curve. Yeah, argument. but it's constantly getting a new gloss. It's constantly yeah, getting a, a new gloss yeah. saying, you know, you know, maybe he didn't get it right, but you know, we do need to like, be serious about people's capacities. Right. So I was wondering if you yeah. could say um, you know, a bit more on you know what you start to talk about in that article and in, in the uh, another piece that you're talking about is the relationship even between a socio-political system like capitalism or a socioeconomic system like capitalism and this uh, the arrangement of this notion of ability and capacity, which bodies are being seen as your know, ones that you want to invest in and which bodies are, are made to appear as, well, there's not much you can do with those. And so these are just limits. These are drags on the economy, drags on the culture. And, you know, to, to show that, like, you know, even like, you know, we talk a lot about capitalism on this show, but like, you know, this sort of eugenic and biological notion of reasoning is very often not very far behind of trying to decide which populations are going to be ones deserving of concern um, or ones that are being made available to expropriation or exploitation. Yes. 
Thanks so much for that question. Yeah, I think that uh, one way to kind of, or an, uh, a potential entry point to answer it is just to say that as far as I can tell historically, and I'll limit myself to the United States just because I should for the purposes of the, this claim, it is not clear to me that you can understand the political concept of citizenship and the way in which that actually plays out across the history of this country without uh, understanding the linkage between, the intimate interconnected linkage between processes of racialization and processes of, let's say, habilitation and debilitation, or I guess that's maybe the least awkward way to phrase that. What do I mean? Well, for example, when categories like the moron and the idiot, which are, these were terms of art, medical terms of art, or early 20th century, uh, late 19th century, when these were created, they were applied differentially based upon uh, various forms of racialization, not just applied differentially to non-white folk, but also applied differentially across what we would today maybe think of as, I don't know, inter-white differences, Italian, you know, what, however you want to carve all of that stuff up. And the function of the combination of race and ability status was precisely in order to relegate some people to poverty and or menial labor and or putting them in an institution where then their labor could be extracted completely free, also known as a form of slavery. Right? Most, most institutions, the vast majority in the United States had labor. They were essentially labor camps. They just weren't called that. And uh, fast forward to today, and this is one of the arguments that, um, you know, is I'm not even close to the first person to say this. You know, Chris Bell said something similar in the 90s. Uh, Lydia Exley Brown has been talking about this for years. But today, when you look at the mass incarceration system in the United States and you learn that at least, at a bare minimum, at least half of people inside of our prison and jail system are disabled in some sense, whether, whether we categorize that as intellectual disabilities, mental health disabilities, or any number of other sets of disabilities, institutionalization hasn't gone anywhere. It's just we talk about it differently. And because of the loophole in the 13th Amendment, as I hope everyone, <laughs> as I hope everyone is aware, right, this is just slavery under a different name. And you have people working either literally for free or they're, you know, it's like 10 cents an hour or something like this, whatever it might be. So this is a long buildup to say that if you look at the highly damaging targeted social political practices like mass incarceration leading from, among other sources, Nixon's war on drugs, which he, he just admitted was his way of targeting black communities and also the quote unquote hippies uh, in that famous tape. If you look at that, if you tie that up with the continuation, I mean, calling it a resurgence is, I think, in some ways inaccurate, the continuation of white supremacy at so many different uh, levels, local, state, and federal, in terms of the way policies are played out, in terms of the way the justice system is structured, in terms of the way that voting rights are configured. There's an argument to be made that eugenics, the eugenics that we talk about as like, oh yeah, the US and the UK did that at the turn of the 20th century. Man, that was shitty. Um, <laughs> We were so good at it. The Nazis. Glad we cut that out. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. And then, and then the Nazis were like, "Great plans. We're just gonna. You gave us the blueprint. Like, thank you, yeah. Jim Crow South. Like, uh, rock on." Uh, and then we say, "Oh, but this went away." And my argument is, it hasn't gone away at all. If anything, it's stronger. 
in many respects. It's just slightly, if you're not knowing where to look, if one is looking in the wrong places, it's perhaps slightly more vague, partially because all the language we use is, is trying very hard to cover over what's happening, right? I mean, the, the, way that, the way that the mass incarceration system as we have it just keeps, I mean, you just saw this a number of months ago. We keep coming back to, oh, but crime rates. You know, just like, it's like, how many times is this lie going to continue to be used? Um, anyway, I've kind of gotten off track. Can here. I ask you a question yeah. about this? So yes. like, so it is vague, but it's also like more subtle. I think part of like the yeah. worry, I wonder if you could speak about like the anxieties for these reasons that like some people, scholars and activists have about like medicalization because it ties directly into these ways of framing these conversations about, you know, who is or is not, you know, problematic due to a, a perceived lack, deficiency, or uh, abnormality, atypicality, as you put it. How, how do we, like, how are we to think of this at the same time holding together this idea with what you said before about, like, you know, the fact that certain sorts of, you know, genomic research, like, does seem to point to something real that we want to say still is real, right? Like, how are we, you know, it's a Scylla Charybdis sort of thing, right? Like, how, how, <laughs> yeah. how can we, yeah. how can we, like, you know, hold on to that there is, like, a reality here while while being aware of the dangers of like a particularly pernicious sort of medicalization given like these legacies of white supremacy and so forth? Great question. I mean, I used to think that this was just like squaring a circle and that there, there was really no way to get around this tension or perhaps that there's something like a parallax going on here where, you know, th those two ways of carving up the world are just, they're not only different ways of carving up, but you can never get them back in alignment. Mm. And these days I'm not so sure and and the the reason I'm not so sure is political because it seems to me that the problem, or let's say this tension, between a focus on individual difference um, and a positing of individual and/or group differences as a causal, you know, explanation for whatever it is we're talking about, versus the goals, the political goals of equity and justice, those don't have to fight with one another. You could use the positing of certain differences in such a way that you still make a more just world. And if you, for example, viewed those positing of those differences ultimately as a heuristic, ultimately as merely a tool on the way to, for example, develop policies that actually help currently disenfranchised people, as opposed to policies that are mainly just sought at the level of the universal, you know, as, this is one of the things Bernie got yelled at so much in, in 2015, 2016. It's like, stop saying free, you know, this for everyone. Like, that's not, we need different, you know, and th there's a whole argument about how things like reparations should be thought about, whether they should be thought about at the level of the system as a whole or individual groups. I defer to people like my colleague Olufemi uh, Taiwo on, on that debate. So my answer is something like, there, the solution has to be political to this tension. And I don't think the right political solution is to say, fuck genomics and fuck all of this research and we're just gonna ignore it. And also to say that it is fundamentally eugenic in the negative sense. I just don't think that gets us anywhere because it's a question of how we take it up, how we use it and our relationship to it as a way of doing research in the life sciences. Um, mm -hmm. A way that, by the way, you know, this has been a very humanistic conversation 
so far, but like there's really interesting stuff going on about non-human animals, about like, you know, it's genomics is not just something that gives insight into humans. I just want to make that clear as well. The, one more thing I'll just add that I'm not sure this, this will maybe get to a thread that I think both you and Will were getting at. One of the reasons I am so adamant that I think philosophers, even ones who don't, you know, claim the mantle of doing philosophy of disability, need to think more carefully about the meaning of ability and disability, of the I can and the I cannot, of the way we talk about capacities. And uh, as I provocatively uh, have said in more than one spot, you show me a political theory that doesn't articulate something like capacity and I'll give you a million dollars. Like you can't get, <laughs> you can't get a political theory off the ground without having some sort of a metaphysics or ontology or whatever word you want to use that posits what the, the unit of inquiry, whether it's the agent, the citizen, the group, the locale, the community, that what they can do. We have to think about this more deeply because historically it seems to me that one of the primary drivers of injustice is to constitute problems at the level of the individual's body. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And that is really, really problematic. You know, it's Rawls, let's just put it this way. I, I don't see how your average Rawlsian can actually address this problem. I don't see how your average utilitarian can address this problem. If anything, they lean hard on a kind of naive concept of ability. And yes, I mean all of them, the rural ones, the actual, you know, the all variations. <laughs> they can um, carve themselves I, up as nicely as they want. They're still yes, having yes. that sort of metaphysical presupposition, which, yeah. you know, as you're, you're talking, you're not to interrupt you, but it's like, I just realized, like, yeah. I talk about capacities all the time. I don't know how to talk about politics without talking about the capacity to do something. And what I found yep. while reading you is that, you know, I almost experienced a strange intellectual frustration of I don't know how not to use that language. That when I'm trying to make a political argument of the world should be thus or, you know, we should do this in order to. Even the in order to is the in order to what? You know, what am I envisioning, <laughs> you know, the normative capacity as being frustrated? And so let me like be like, you know, give like two hugely different examples of how I think this comes in. So there's a type of we can call like a, an ethical Marxism or an ethical politics of, you know, we should be able to um, enjoy our lives as, as, as X, be able to do this, be able to contest that. Or there's, you know, you know, this more sort of scientific Marxism where it's not about ethics, it's about, you know, science. That, you know, the problem is, you know, we should be able to know the world, you know, apart from, you know, um, these obfuscations, distortions, etc. But on all those accounts, you have to posit some notion of, so what is the, the norm or the form of the capacity we are trying to help people get to? And when I start thinking that way, I do start realizing, even if it's not explicit, that I have an idea of what body am I seeing that I'm trying to help constitute that will be able to do these things? With what hands? With what legs? With what mind? And so you, you entered me into this metaphysical quandary that, you know, yes, it's political, but it, you know, it revealed me that it's not something you can hand wave away. It's not something like you can like virtue signal away and say like, oh, but you know, I don't do capacity political theory. I do <laughs> non-capacity. People, then what? What do you? What do you find? I'm a Rawls. Yeah, I don't do that. You know, what is that? One of the things, the reasons why I don't think there's a, an easy way out of the problem of capacity or dealing with the category of capacity is precisely something that you make clear, Joel, which is that the way that oppression has been naturalized, like the way that 
many different forms, if not all forms of oppression, have been naturalized, right, discursively, is by putting them on the plane of capacity and incapacity, right? Yep. That's the way, not just, you know, you gave the example of slavery, that's the justification for why slavery, or at least the justification given for why slavery had to exist was because, well, basically, black people don't possess the same capacities, and so there needs to be this, this patronizing system of, like, tutelage and care, but I mean, there's even more less extreme examples of the reason why people push back against, you know, worker control and unionization is uh, the supposed, you know, lack of capacity or the absence of the of certain capacities, right? That would render them able to have the a kind of autonomous or self managerial kind of structure. And so I wonder, just to go to the back to the the question of politics, then how you see politics of disability coming out of your analytical framework. What you think of the I mean, do you think politics has something inevitably to do with a process of like capacitation of like building capacities and, and what what kind of praxis is involved in the way that you see the politics of disability engaging the question of capacities, if that makes sense? Mm, yeah, that's great. I So yes to what you just said. I am very fond of the idea of thinking of politics at base, politics in, in this broad sense as a process of capacitization. Cool. And unfortunately, uh, I'm not really sure how you can engage in any process of capacitization without there being also debilitation built into it. Hmm. Um, either built into it explicitly or built into it by a, a, what Cena uh, Kramer would call a constitutive exclusion. Mm -hmm. You know, this is all to say I, I, you know, I'm very pessimistic about how far <laughs> or how close to adjust anything we could ever get. So just, just bracket my pessimism for a moment there. I, I think we could do it. Don't get me wrong. We could do way better than we are doing. I just don't. Um, and, Thank and you again, for saying that. You know, yeah, this is not the yeah, best yeah. of all possible worlds. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is not even close to the best. Um, I'm not. I'm, I don't want that to Another be L for Leibniz. Put it on the board. <laughs> <laughs> one of many. Um, but so let me let me back up one second and just bring back up the question of capitalism, right? And the the role that labor under a, a capitalist economic system plays. Um, and I don't want to get into the weeds with various marks. Like, so let me just uh, stay at the, a very high level of generality. Insofar as nation building projects, settler colonial nation building projects like the United States are engaged in a politics of capacitization of the citizens for whom they, you know, they want to do the best, which at the beginning was, I guess, arguably just white, landed, property-owning, very, very small, small slice was, you know, working for their, uh, their well-being above all else. Insofar as capitalism builds in a driver towards the labor of individuals being that by which they are recognized as having value in the larger system. Insofar as that's baked into it, that labor has to, that, that one has to produce and produce relative to the values of a capitalist system, then there is a fundamentally, and again, this is not new, there's a fundamentally extractive relationship where it's not simply that you have to posit value and worth as in the individual's body, but what you can get out of it or what, if we want to make it a little more passive, is gotten out of it through the various forms of disciplining to invoke Foucault and forms of other shaping that the larger socioeconomic 
political order puts any given individual through. On capitalism, then, there is an argument to be made that insofar as that as, as capitalist modes of production are built into this nation-building project that has a politics of capacitization for the few, the privileged few, and not for others, you need all sorts of debilitating mechanisms to make sure that the goods and the values keep going to that elite privileged class and do not get more justly distributed. You know, and the fact that we right now have the highest levels of inequality we have ever had in the United States since before the Great Depression, relative to the last, whatever, 150 years, obviously not relative to the beginning, wherever that beginning is, not 1776, obviously, 1619, wherever we put the marker. This says something really fascinating to me, that this is happening at the exact same time or as part of the same processes as the civil rights movement, the disability rights movement, women's rights movement, all of this these, these things that were thought to or were trying to equalize the capacitization process, now we get this huge economic siphoning, very, very powerful economic siphoning, and one that has been, to be very clear, not merely laid out by one side of American politics, but has been supported through and through by both sides. <laughs> Just one side likes to, you know, throw more crumbs out. <laughs> moldy crumbs, but yeah. Moldy, moldy <laughs> crumbs, yes. And often crumbs that are, it's too late to even satiate hunger at that point. <laughs> Feeding the hunger of 20 years ago. <laughs> okay, so I had this question a while ago where... I can't remember who asked you about the political implications of this. You actually had one a really nice phrase in one of your essays where you said, the stakes of this are whether or not we are at bottom unequal with respect to our bodily capacities, and do we have to just learn to deal with inequality or not? What I gathered, and I'm not sure I'm not sure that you quite connected it this way, but what I thought was that it just seems like that I mean that's kind of like the foundational question, like what's at stake is actually just like how we think about equality in general in the abstract. And then your claim is that like radical social constructivism is just not able to do that adequately. Like it's not, it doesn't have the resources. Mm. And I think that like, for, forgive me for being kind of trite, but like when you made your argument that there's like a there there when we're talking about impairments, I just thought this was the most obvious thing in the world. And like, I love the way you laid it out and I thought it was very clarifying, but I, I actually have the experience of like, reading radical social constructivist stuff and like just like hyper post-structuralism and I actually didn't realize until like several years after getting that kind of like my feet in the water or toes in the pond or whatever with that kind of literature that people were actually serious when they said they were saying everything was just socially everything was just discursive and then once I like I was shocked I was like what do you mean like, what are you talking about? Like, how can you build a politics around different capacities? So like, you know, like body, people's bodies matter differently. Like, you know, Texas is like banning abortions and like people who need abortions, like need that to not be the case. And you'd saying my body is socially constructed at like the most fundamental possible level. There, like, there's just something that's just like, it's, it's politically like a dead end to me like there's complex questions i understand about gender identity and so on and it's stupid in, in the technical sense of stupid <laughs> not the ableist sense of stupid it's a, it's a stupid argument but like, you know what i mean but it's just like i get that there's like complex things we want to say about how bodies matter socially and politically but like 
fundamentally they do matter. Like there is a there there that we're talking about and people have access to things differently because of them. And like, this is just kind of a broad thing. Like I just didn't know people really meant it. I thought we were actually just talking about social constructivism <laughs> in like the normal way. And then I actually like, you know, since I joined Twitter, I see a lot of like really radical social constructivist stuff. Like it's all the way down the discourse, you know, and it's all the way down the social. And I'm kind of wondering, like, how did we get to this place? Because I feel like um, I think you're right that the problem is whether or not we're fundamentally unequal and how we deal with inequality. And you can't answer that question if you can't admit that there's like a thing that we're talking about. Um, You end up just being like, yeah, there's all these differences and there's no like problem here we're dealing with. So like, what are we doing as like a like what in the world are you building a political strategy around? That's how you just get like culturalism and like the worst sense where like you actually do just have to strategize at the level of like having a hegemonic discourse and that's how we're going to do politics so i'm yeah, yeah the, the that's a, a little like whoo out there but like how do you think we got here like why does this intervention need to be made i'm genuinely curious maybe just as a starting maybe just as a, a one other question to tack on to that which is that what is denying any pre or extra discursive element of a of a syndrome or of a disability like what does that even mean <laughs> <laughs> like that, to say that there's that there's no i mean i get i get i get one claim a, a more limited claim which is that our relationship to our epistemic relationship to the way we come to know disabilities and the way we come to know things like syndromes is always mediated through cultural and discursive categories. And we can't just have some kind of pure cognitive access to these things that happen in the body. But I, I just, I, I don't know, maybe it's a similar stupefaction. Maybe I, I don't understand what it would mean to say that there is nothing extra discursive. It's, there's nothing but language, like when it comes to these a- aspects of embodiment. Mm. And if I could also tack on to that, I know, Joel, you, you know, like, we're like piling up, but I just want to say, like, <laughs> wait, I have another question. One, Let one me quick add. Thing. <laughs> I have a question about your question. So let's go one, <laughs> yeah. one step yeah. up. Look, there's nothing outside the text. It's all, it's all questions all <laughs> the way down. Let's go, baby. Man. Yes, but let's go. <laughs> the, the really quick thing that I will say about, you know, where I sometimes see this radical social constructionism goes is that it's a way of avoiding really hard political questions that if it is the case that you know you use the example of someone if they have some sort of a, I forget the term use genetic coding they will develop I believe MS at some some point in their lives I think I was talking about Huntington's but yeah Huntington's sorry Huntington's it's a way of making this sort of wishful statement of you know actually it turns out if we made the real perfect culture none of these would be real problems that depression would you know no longer be a thing that is out there or someone who suffers from chronic pain as we said you were talking about in the beginning that in even in a perfectly just world there will probably be people who suffer from chronic pain and it's a way of not dealing with the fact that what if you really want this one model of capacity and and the what you're trying to talk about is like you know maybe there's a way where we won't have to deal with all of these messy bodily realities that, you know, it actually is, you know, sort of easy sort of um, universalism where these aren't hard political questions of how do we deal with real differences that, you know, are going to be there even if we solve every problem. And so it's a way of wishing it away or bracketing it out, these hard questions. Yeah. 
Okay, I'm probably there's no way I'm gonna sufficiently address <laughs> the, the that triplet of questions, but uh, let's see here. Would you like me to add? I can make it a fourth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, make a fourth. Let's go. Let's go all the way. Yeah. Do you think it's true that the CIA is the reason why we uh we we got Damn. to where we are right now? Is yeah. I mean, I mean. I just can't believe that JFK <laughs> is still actually alive. I know. You know? Foucault I mean, was a CIA plant, right? That's right. Yeah. That, oh, of course. 100%. 100%. Yeah. 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 Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> have I talked to you about our Lord and Savior QAnon? I don't know. We have everything together. Yeah. All right. So, um, what a turn. <laughs> where we go, one we go all. <laughs> oh, God. Well done. I love that Musketeers reference. Oh, wait, no, that's not, yeah, okay. Three Musketeers, I can't remember now. Um, And then my brain just went to Leonardo DiCaprio. Riffin, baby. That's the man in the mask. Different movie. Wow, this is, all right. You have sent me down the rabbit hole. We are Um, riffing now. We're getting, All right. There's only Leonardo DiCaprio. That's just language. Leonardo DiCaprio does not exist. It's just a pure, no there, pure there. construct. I'm a, I'm a pure <laughs> no constructive I mean, constructivist on the question of DiCaprio. Yeah, yeah. Like when he fought a bear, we all know that man is Jesus. He's just, yeah, exactly. right, so, how did we get here? So, so on the one hand, I, I totally share. I mean, I'm glad you're like this is obvious. I feel like that's the highest compliment in philosophy, and we don't realize that. So when you're like, yeah, this this seems really obvious. Um, let me try and be sympathetic to where. I think some of this is coming from. I, of course, will still refrain from being sympathetic to the argument, but but let's say maybe the origins. Go back to people like Paul Hunt uh, in the UK who helped start the UPIUS, the Union of the Physically Impaired Against Segregation. Go back to people like Ed Roberts um, in his fights against UC Berkeley that kicked off what we call the independent living movement in the United States. And when you read, you know, they're... they're explanations of what they were doing and you read their arguments it is so visceral how they are trying to get people to stop thinking that their material body or mind is the problem and they're Mm -hmm. pointing at look at the society look at the society look at you know this it's just this really heavy duty effort just to get someone you know to to change that and let's not forget with Ed Roberts. I mean, he was in an iron lung for part of the time, if I remember the story correctly. So, like, try and get someone, you know, imagine you're talking with someone who is in an iron lung and they're like, the problem is this building or the problem is the administration. And you can you can feel, even if you're you in general, of course, I don't mean you, Lillian, um, that is hard, I think, even for someone who is working to fight against every ableist intuition in the world. That is a hard thing to not see the person in the iron lung as largely having problems just at the level of their body. So I think much of the movement towards social constructionism, including the vulgar way off the charts forms is a reflex from Mm -hmm. this type of, well, you try convincing people when you're, (laughs) when you're sitting in an iron lung that the problem is them. Uh, in the society. Now, does that justify going too far? Absolutely not. And th- this is, again, why I think the the fights in the 90s in particular, not just Susan Wendell, Tom Shakespeare, Liz Crow, a, a number of these authors are like, hold on, like, hold on. We need to talk about material bodies too. And there's a mirroring, of course, of the, the turn to matter in certain pockets of feminist theory and later queer theory. 
but for some reason, I feel like some of the more extreme forms of social constructionism still lived on in certain pockets of DS discourse. And I think there are some people who just think that they're in that fight. Still, the fight that Ed Roberts and, and Paul mm. Hunt and some of these people were. And I just don't, I just think that's an incorrect analysis. Well, there just the does seem to be like a, like an anxiety, right? That like claiming that there is something real, real, extra discursively real or true about mm-hmm. a body at all is somehow like a reactionary move. Yeah. Right? Like there, there's good. like a word. Yeah. Yeah. Like you're already in point. eugenics as soon as you do that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And, and maybe this, this hooks back up with the larger claims you're making about nation state building and capitalism and white supremacy and all that jazz. You know, I think of Stacey Simplican's book called The Capacity Contract. And uh, in many ways, I view that, you know, it, it's written purposefully yeah. in the genre or with the framework that we get from Carol Pateman and Charles Mills. Uh, I heard he's in the hospital right now. I, I hope. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm, hope I'm so. really bless his amazing soul. Um, no kidding. So the intensity with which someone might want to say, stop focusing on embodied differences is hard to overstate both at personal and political levels. And I think Simplican's work really lays out an interesting dimension of that. I I should give, I feel like, the good news is that the argument I'm making in this piece, I feel like most people today who are fighting for disability justice or who identify themselves as disability justice advocates think the kind of stronger form of social constructionism is utter bullshit. Like, they're very much on the same page as I think well, certainly I am, but but the yeah. rest of us are. I'm thinking of people like Talila A. Lewis. I'm thinking of people like Dustin Gibson, people like Lydia X. Z. Brown, uh, people like Leah Lakshmi. Uh, I always mess up their last name, but if you Google Leah Lakshmi uh, Disability Justice, you'll find them. These people have very, in my view, very sophisticated intersectional analyses that bring in the complexity and messiness of material conditions with the ideals of various sorts of you know political ends they're always thinking about disability justice alongside indigenous justice alongside racial justice alongside gender and sexuality justice and i i view this from my you know mostly academic tower vantage point as a as a really positive development on the ground and one that i just think is fundamentally more promising especially mm-hmm. considering that climate change we have to get all all on board with systemic changes or all but the very richest are going to be fucked in various ways. There has to be a more universalizing move here. And the old, more siloed identity yeah. politics stuff is just, it's just not going to cut it. I don't see how it could possibly cut it for the, the crisis we're facing. The equality thing, to, to go back to your original comment, Lillian, that, I, that, that quote you picked out, that's, that's interesting. I, what's funny is you said it and I was like, I said that? As often, <laughs> as often happens with one's Um I, I often wonder what disability justice actually implies for the concept of equality. It seems to me that concept just has to be thrown out. You have to have equity. You have to, have, like, there, there has to be, again, the, the people that I was mentioning before, I think disability justice advocates, perhaps more than anyone, want to admit and pay attention to the real in let's go with quotation marks this time, the real differences between people, whether what we're saying those differences are at the level of the genomic, the epigenomic, whether we're saying they're merely at the level of uh, social ramifications due to stigma, discrimination, oppression, whatever it might be, we have to pay attention to those differences. And doing so means we cannot equalize them. 
we cannot just act like everyone should be treated the same and then that will bring about a better world. And again, I think, I think this is a significant improvement. This is a better approach for the times in which we find ourselves and we'll see what happens. I don't know. I mean, this, it's, it's literally before we were about to meet today, uh, uh, not only was I reading about that $3.5 billion, in, sorry, $3.5 trillion infrastructure bill that can be passed through reconciliation, right? They only need 50 votes for that in the Senate, but also that Biden just finally went on the record saying, yeah, we're going to probably have to get rid of the filibuster if we want to, you know, protect voting rights. And it was right. just this interesting moment of like, oh, incrementalism, yeah, it hasn't been going so well. Like, maybe we need a little it's bit not more. It's been going so well. Yeah, maybe we need some more heavy-hitting stuff at the federal level that, like, protects voting. <laughs> this is my whole new thing. I'm, like, about breaking down the federal system, man. And the more I think about it, the more I'm like, this is the main problem. Like in terms of political institutions, you know, because like a lot of the things that I worry about, whether it's rights or just like social programs, like when you think about like the fundamental, like crippling nature of like the state, like the federal system, and that like the biggest improvements of people's lives have like 90% of the time come from like federal action, when they were able to like, for various political reasons, override. I mean, I get that states rights has a particular history, but I mean, in the, the not just in the white supremacist sense, but like in the general sense, like right. be able to just take control over the federal system. There's the capitalism problem, but it's like, this is like the obstacle to reform. Like the more I like get this in my head, the more I'm like, you have to do things at the federal level. Otherwise, like the state capacity in this country is like never going to be built up sufficiently to solve any of our problems, like even a little bit. Yeah. And even beyond that, as you know, I, I could go on and on being critical of things like the United Nations, especially if you know its history, dear God, um, and and the World Health Organization and all of this stuff and their imbrication with things like the World Bank and the IMF. I digress. The point is, it is still the case yeah. that I, I just don't understand how we're going to address climate change if there isn't some international body that actually has teeth. Yeah. No kidding. Like yeah. the teethlessness. It's, it's necessary. Yeah, like, it's unavoidable, I, right? Yeah. I, I don't see any way around it. And yeah. and and as hesitant as I am to put teeth on any international body, and hesitant yeah, for exactly. all the reasons that anyone paying attention would have, like, <laughs> what is the other solution? Like, uh, you know, try and make enough money that you get on the ship to go to Mars, and you know, end up killing yourself on the way because Elon Musk is just unbearable in person. You know, that's yeah. like the only other. That's the only <laughs> other route. That's not going to work for me personally. And also, <laughs> Teslas are built like shit. But, <laughs> you know, I didn't actually know that. Uh, my man does not know how to build a car. <laughs> I I was I was I just saw like you know some stuff on Twitter of people being like, finally got my Tesla. Oh, my steering wheel came off. <laughs> but you know, you know, I know this happens to all of y'all, and, and everyone's in this person's mentions being like, the steering wheel has never come off of my car. <laughs> That's not a thing that happens. That's not a thing. Oh my God. All right. Well, I think that's going to do it for us here today. Um, thank you so much, Joel, for joining us today. Uh, it was really, really wonderful conversation. Thank you. That was, uh, that yeah, was thanks, great. Joel. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Joel. Yeah. Thank you.
New episodes of What's Up to Philosophy come out every two weeks, wherever you get your podcasts. We are shouting out all of our patrons, 20 at a time, to try to catch up. Um, so starting with the earliest subscribers, today's members who we'd like to thank include Abra K, VM Maison, John Tappen, Jeffrey Gordon, Moritz Beinhofer, Matthew Ryan, Anton Waronchuk, Caitlin Flowerday, Joshua McAvoy, Tushant Mittal, Kyle Van Derzen, X Vaughn, Gabriel Gottlieb, Sam Bodinet, Eric Smart, Austin Brown, James Spruce, Matt Salud, Larissa Nenning, Connor Upcott, and Sundoku. If you'd like to support the show, like those folks we just thanked, please subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash philosophy. Please follow us on Twitter at leftofphil and follow Joel at Joel M. Reynolds. Uh, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye now.